Hello, this is Anne Eugenio, and you are listening to the Momentum Therapy Podcast, Episode 6. This episode is a conversation I had with my fellow cohort member and friend, Sharon Templeton. She is a great conversationalist. In fact, we recorded this podcast over the course of two hours, and it felt like five minutes. I could talk to her for hours every day. It's It was really a lot of fun. I learned so much, and listening back to this as I've been doing some editing, I feel like I've learned even more. So after a brief introduction, we'll be discussing marginalization, marginalization oppression, and mental health, and sort of the beginnings to approaching these topics. We discussed the first class we took together in our marriage and family therapy program at PLU, which was called Contextual Foundations in Marriage and Family Therapy, and some of the things that we learned there. I've reduced this conversation of two hours to roughly two 20-minute episodes, so necessarily I jump from topic to topic occasionally. And when I do that, I'll insert a little bit of my intro music so you can know when that's happening. Okay, I think that's all you need to know. Let's do this. So today I'm so excited to be here with my cohort buddy, Sharon, and she is one of the people that is probably one of the most educated in the room, although you'd, she doesn't tout that and she's making a face at me now, but she has been a lot of fun to get to know. So she's here with me. We're going to talk about some things. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit more? Yeah. Um, so hello, my name is Sharon. I use she, her pronouns. And I currently am the proud holder of a master's in, of science in uh, student affairs and higher education with an emphasis on culture, equity, and dialogue. So that's fun. Uh, not the only other person in our cohort who already has a master's degree. Going to shout out Kazaya. Oh, yes, and that's her true. master's in religion. Um but yeah, there's a definite Venn diagram between my last degree and this degree um, that I think comes out a lot in class. Yeah. So you come about, come with a lot of background knowledge um, and understanding, um, which has been super great. And um, But also, everything you just said, that long title, I'm actually not even sure exactly <laughs> what that means. Yeah. Yeah. Most people aren't. Uh, I have a super overly niche previous master's degree right and you would think I would learn but I'm now getting a marriage and family therapy super niche mental health degree um but so student affairs and higher education are two-ish areas of study that I think people most understand when I explain it's equivalent to the way an MBA is about business or um someone might get a hospital administration degree. I essentially have a degree that focused on how higher education functions in the United States. So studied higher education, as well as how students function within a higher education setting. So a lot of developmental psychology and um, theories and models and how to research that the things colleges do promote the growth, development, and learning of their students outside of the classroom. So not just the academic rigor, um, which is a degree I had to get to run a residence hall. And that feels like a really weird thing sometimes because most of my day, and I think what y'all get to hear about work a lot, is me being like, someone broke a window and now it's my problem. Or, um, yeah, I get to have a conversation later this week about a traffic cone. There's a whole kerfuffle 
about a traffic cone that is floating between people's rooms and everyone's mad about it. And so I'm going to sit down with multiple first-year students who are all adults and figure out why we are upset about a traffic cone <laughs> and how the traffic cone got there and why it needs to leave. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. That sounds like good college fun. <laughs> yep. It's a good time. So... Um, but the the latter bit, the the equity, culture, and dialogue, um, was basically a, a crash course in a lot of the similar equity topics we talk about. How someone's positionality in society, their social identity, so race, gender, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status that that whole realm of understanding of how society is organized, how those things impact the college experience. And then when you have college students, they're either in the most the most diverse place they have ever been, and it is mind-boggling, or they are in the least diverse place they've ever been, and it is chafing as all get out mm. and immensely psychologically difficult. Mm. And so my focus was learning enough about those positionalities and the way marginalization and oppression function in society so that when students are in the microcosm that is college, you can get them to talk across difference and learn something from each other while not doing what higher ed has traditionally done, which is prioritizing white male Mm -hmm. safety Mm -hmm. at the forefront. So that's it sounds a lot fancier when I explain it. It sounds confusing when I just say the title. All in all, I got a degree in college, which feels, I don't know, a little silly occasionally. <laughs> well, it makes a lot of sense to me because it's such a common, not for everyone, but many of our young people, that's that's their transition mm-hmm. to adulthood is during that time. Yeah, um, emergent adults. Mm-hmm. They're my favorite. They're, <laughs> oh, they're so good. So many modes of like accountability, ability to hold nuance, mm-hmm. like self-determination, walking the line between honoring your community and honoring your desires. It's it's a super cool time. Let's jump forward right to the meat of our conversation about contextual issues in marriage and family therapy, where Sharon talks a little bit about what she learned before coming to PLU in her previous program. My last program and a lot of what I learned from doing some of that work, you need to start with the self-analysis. Mm-hmm of like a deep and thorough inventory of where you are at and where the things you don't know that you don't know. And that's second order ignorance is what Mm. that's called. It's Mm -hmm. my grandpa's favorite topic. Uh, (laughs) Who's an engineer and engineers are scared of the things they don't know. They don't know because that's what makes the bridge collapse at the end of the day. Um, Kind of figuring out Becoming non-ignorant to the things you are ignorant to and then addressing that in a pretty methodical way. Mm -hmm. And you sort of, it's a dialectic, it's like a spiral. Mm -hmm. You kind of go around and around over certain topics and each time you come back, you have a greater understanding and you learn more and you can just kind of Mm -hmm. rinse, wash and repeat throughout your lifetime. Um, I really like that. I really like that picture of it because it, it takes away this idea of arrival in, in any mm-hmm. particular um, spot or under, understanding. Yeah. Um, and makes it, and it allows people to just be on that. 
Right. And there's no arrival. And so I think, like, it wasn't even that long ago. It was just four years ago when Mm -hmm. I graduated Mm -hmm. my other program. Um, And even that was... um, some of the stuff I learned there feels dated, mm-hmm. which is surprising. It's a really uh, quickly changing landscape, This the things you're learning. My favorite quote from last week, and I keep telling everyone this quote. Oh, I'm excited. I just let, let me look it up. It says, all cultures are by, their na- are by their nature oppressive because, by definition, they must identify certain behaviors as acceptable. The degree to which a culture is oppressive is directly correlated with its ability to be reflexive, meaning, you know, thinking about which voices aren't being heard, seeking those voices out, listening to them and adapting. I was thinking about that as as it applies to a family, like my own family. And I've taken the time to um, make sure there's space for my youngest son to be heard because he usually is just over there playing a video game because he's never going to get a word in edgewise. I see that happening in the class, um, in class. and I know we're going to need to do that in the therapy room. And I think that as a culture, like that, and it keeps going up in levels, mm-hmm. right? We have to be able to learn as a culture how to make space, how to make space for that. And then also as therapists and as friends, recognize when other people aren't having that that experience and mm-hmm. opening that up um, for them. Yeah. So, so that's one of the things that I've learned, um, and hopefully. It's happening. And with how that relates to what you're talking about is that it's like it's not really like a place that you arrive at. It's like a, a more of a, a way of being, I would think, is how I've how I've how, a way of being in the world with other people in a way that that um, reduces oppression and invites everyone in to the table equally. And I hate to use that table metaphor because it's like way over <laughs> way tired. But that's just what yeah. came out of my mouth. So, yeah. I, I also highlighted the hell out of that quote uh, in the it. book. It's so good. It's really good. And the key there is reflexive, which doesn't always mean vocalized. And so I think that's something else, especially with class. The loudest voices aren't always the most reflexive voices. And um, just because, especially with social justice, just because someone has the appropriate nomenclature, language, vocab, de jour of the day, of the year, just because you know what words are currently the most inclusive does not mean that you're actively engaging with those topics in an inclusive manner. That's fascinating. Say more about that. So what I have found is a lot of doing social justice work is ability to hold immense nuance and live in the gray. And once you kind of jump that hurdle, the continual learning feels pretty solid and second nature. And you definitely have to tend it, um, but it, it doesn't feel as intense and deep work all the time of um, you sort of can accept yourself as an infallible or a fallible being versus infallible right right? um that was a nice freudian (laughs) slip for everyone uh it you know humans want you are the hero of your own story especially in western u.s culture especially the western u.s that rugged individualism Mm -hmm. we have in washington um 
you, you only have your own perspective. And so you will always give yourself the benefit of the doubt reflects instinctually, which makes sense for your own care and keeping of you. And to do good social justice work, you have to accept that you will mess up more than you expect. And that those mess ups are sites of deep and important learning. And if you are perfect, if you never goof it all up in an extraordinary fashion, uh, you're not learning or moving forward. And being able to be that level of reflexive is the key. And so if someone is doing social justice learning to become perfect, they're not actually doing. And my, I am a singular human. In my humble opinion, they're not actually doing the good work of what that means. So in order to learn so that they can become more right and have, more correct, then that's missing the mark. To, in order to learn to be more right and show up the way they want to show up, they have to accept that they will be wrong mm-hmm. often. Mm-hmm. And that they're two disparate thoughts mm-hmm. that not everyone can hold simultaneously initially. You have to learn how to hold them and remind yourself to hold them. What would you say about this idea of wanting to protect yourself from pain as a reason for that happening? And our ability as humans to be able to let go of that being painful, the, the how being wrong or making a mistake can no longer, I mean, there's the one side that says we need to be willing to experience pain, but we can also let go of it as a painful or wrong experience to have and just let it become part of our pattern of learning. What would you say about that? Doesn't it suck <laughs> that um, white people have to like wade through all of the psychological ish of accepting the discomfort to actually stand up and make change mm. when they have the least to lose mm-hmm. in this whole situation. Mm-hmm. The like, oh, sometimes it matters more that I try and I will mess up when I'm trying because this is something the system has been built so that I have a limited awareness and literacy. Mm. That's what it is. White people have very stunted racial literacy, right? Straight people have pretty stunted queer literacy, right? You Mm -hmm. don't know about those cultures and environments and what it actually feels like. And you are societally best positioned to fix things. And so how do you walk Mm. a bunch of lines, right? And to know that in doing that, you are the least qualified to be walking some of those lines. And so it's this constant balance of um, continuing to use race as like a point of analysis, a continuous line of white people are best positioned because they have privilege in society to undo the systems that we built to hold others back. And at the same time, we are the least qualified to figure out what a solution is because we made the damn mess. Mm -hmm. And those who have been marginalized and live that experience and know how these systems operate intimately and painfully are the ones who should be informing the solution. Mm -hmm. And you got to go back and forth between those two things on any various from like a micro level up to a macro like federal law level. Um, And to be able to know that both those things are true simultaneously um, because those are two different things right of like white people have a power and obligation to fix this and at the same time have no business doing so Mm -hmm. because they may right and that 
dichotomy and being able to live in that dichotomy and realize it's not a dichotomy, it's a spectrum Mm -hmm. and move into that. That's like the reflexivity that I think that was getting at. Mm. And because I'm pretty sure just the way MFT functions, we're going to be hard pressed not to have some pretty solid ability to hold nuance by the end of it. I get the feeling that we want to go there because we want to do the work to be good therapists. That's the motivation that all of us, the biggest fear of all is that we'll show up in a therapy room and have not done what's required to be good. As vulnerable and as scared a lot of us are just to be in a space where um, we're, well, just to say graduate school is scary for a lot of people. This is your second time, but it's a lot of us terrifying. <laughs> it's my second time, and I'm still terrified. We're all we're all sitting here a little bit just terrified in general. Like, can we can we hack it? Are we made for this? That's a lot of time and money. Um, you want to retain the respect of your professors at all times and your fellow cohort members, and so there's like an immediate, like super close visceral feeling of fear, and then um, and then as you start to learn things you, that you realize you didn't know. Um, then you're, you know, there's just like these layers that you're unpacking. Now, so this leads me to the question I want to ask is, can you make a case, case, can you make a case in a few sentences for the need for your therapist sitting across the table from you to be versed in social justice and have, and to be educated in a way that, that leads them to this ability to be reflexive so make that case because many people listening to this podcast will be like, wait a second, that's part of marriage and family therapy. They'll not even be able, not even be quite aware that this is an element and a piece. So we learned last semester, one of the foundational systemic practice axioms or whatever is humans can't not communicate. Even when you try not to communicate, you are still conveying something for others to glean meaning from. Your silence, being asleep, your absence, all still send a signal to someone else about how you feel about them, your relationship. You're still telling them something. Likewise, human beings cannot exist outside of society. There is not a way. You can be a hermit in the woods and your hermitage is still defined by your exit from society, right? There is no way to pull ourselves out of that. And society has well documented the ways that we organize it to harm those within it. Mm. And so every client that every MFT, every mental health professional will ever have exists in society. Those rules, those expectations, the way the government functions, what is considered socially acceptable on a large scale versus in specific communities, all of that gets woven into the fight that the married couple in front of you had about burning the banana bread. All of it, right? And they carry that into the room with you every session and you carry yourself into the room. And if you can't understand the like super complex 3D model of webs that make up the way we relate to one another and how that can benefit and harm, you have no business trying to assist others as they go on a therapy journey. I love it. That was that was wonderfully Thanks. wonderfully said. The banana bread. I yeah. 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 I burned my own banana bread the other day. I think I'm just realizing mm-hmm. I burnt banana bread for dinner waiting for me. Yeah. One of the things that I've learned is that um, it's going to, again, ties back to to this idea of how we, 
of um, not arriving at any particular knowledge point is that um, we need to be able to understand this complex web you, me- web you mentioned, the where what's affecting this banana red explosion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's less about knowing how, knowing what that web is, and more about exploring it with your client in the way that helps mm-hmm. them discover it along with you, with you. Yeah, so it becomes an exploration process and learning that skill. And I think you mentioned this earlier too, applying it to yourself. And doing that self-work and understanding where you fit into context is like that first experience you have with uncovering all that. Is that kind of something that you feel is, how, how do you feel about that? <laughs> right on? Yeah. Yeah. That's excellent. It's beautiful. Um, it's consistent. And I think we've talked a lot throughout learning about different therapy models of how and when a therapist is situated as an expert and all that jazz. And when you get to join with the system or be part of the system or all that, all that jazz, mm-hmm. um, you're never not without yourself and you need to be able to be most skilled at navigating those things with yourself um, first. And then I think are able to do some solid exploration with others because um, it gets infinitely more complicated with others. And that's also where the greatest risk for messing up comes. And once again, to tie it to a great like parallel with our own classes, research shows that the thing that can most, um, one of the common factors that is a good predictor of some of the stronger therapeutic relationships is the ability to have a therapist mess up, a client to point it out, and the therapist to do better next time. And so you have to be prepared to continually do that. And no, it doesn't mean you're a bad therapist or a bad person. Mm-hmm. It means you're learning mm-hmm. and there is no arrival. So you are always learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think right now on this podcast, it's easy for us to be seen as experts. But right. we're just, uh, <laughs> every, just to remind everyone, we are students at grad school. We are two people sitting in an <laughs> empty classroom at 730 at night having a philosophical and like really intense conversation um, that like we're both just trying. I'm sure I've done things today that have unintentionally and still powerfully marginalized other people Mm -hmm. the same way I have uh, experienced marginalization. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, being able to hold those both is kind of the crux of it. If you're enjoying this conversation with Sharon, and I hope you are, join us next time for part two. Till then.